Well, good morning. You may have guessed from the reading that we're in the middle of a series in uh, 2 Timothy. And uh, we've been very, very excited about this series. We've said before that, you know, 2 Timothy is one of the most intimate and personal of all of Paul's letters. He's writing it to his disciple Timothy, who's like a son to him. And it's really important to understand the context for this letter because it's the context that really gives it clarity for us. So a couple of things are happening here. First, Timothy is a pastor at the church of Ephesus, and they are taking this guy's lunch money. I mean, he's becoming a timid priest and a timid leader because they're trying to tell him what to say and what not to say and how he should teach and on and on. So that's the first thing. Secondly, Nero is ratcheting up the pressure on on the persecution of Christians. And because Ephesus is a Roman city, the persecution of Christians is happening there as well. And then finally, Paul is in prison at Rome. He's facing a death sentence. Both Paul and Timothy know that he's going to die. And uh, so Paul's going to speak into Timothy in the middle of all of these painful and difficult circumstances, but he isn't just going to speak to Timothy, he's going to speak to you and to me, because this is more than just a letter. This is the word of God written, not just for Timothy, but for us, for those of us in this room. And today we're going to pick up where Lee left off last week. I thought Pastor Lee did a fantastic job unpacking this. So I'm only going to make one observation about verse one, and then we're going to move on. So 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1. You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. So Paul is saying, look, I know all these things are going on, Timothy. I know this is difficult. You're going to need to be strong in God's grace. It's God's grace that will see you through. God's grace is the single resource that will see you through any difficulty. Now, a little later in this message, I'm going to tell you specifically how you can know with 100% certainty that you are standing strong in God's grace, how you can be certain of that. But we're going to come back to that in a little bit. In the meantime, look at verse 2. What you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, commit to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Friends, this is the blueprint for how one disciple makes another disciple. And so Paul's essentially saying, look, what I've passed on to you, I want you to take that and I want you to pass that on to other people who will then be faithful to pass that on to someone else. And that's what makes someone faithful in this context, that they are going to take what they have received, they're going to take what they have been given, and they're going to turn around and they're going to make another disciple. In fact, I tell our staff team all the time, it's not a win for us when we make a disciple. That's not a win. The win for Shelbyville Community Church is when we make a disciple that then turns around and makes another disciple. When we have a life investing in a life that then invests in another life and you begin to create just this chain of people that are sold out for Jesus. 
And this is so important because you know our mission, right? Our mission is to grow radical or rooted disciples who love and lead like Jesus. And you may be here this morning and you may think, well, I'm not a leader. And we would just say this, if you're here this morning and you know some people, you have a sphere of influence and your call is to use Uh, to leverage your sphere of influence to lift up Jesus, to magnify Jesus, to help create a passion for Jesus with everybody in the room. And we would just say this, that everyone, it's our commitment that everyone needs to grow up and become a spiritual parent. This is so important. All of us are meant to... uh, to receive, to turn, and to pass that on in a relational, individual, one-on-one context. And, uh, and this is exactly why we've been asking uh, everyone. We, we passed out cards last week. If you need a card, we'd invite you to go out to the lobby, go to the connection desk. We'd be happy to get you one there. We're challenging everyone to memorize 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 and two. We would challenge you to do that. I double dog dare you. Whatever I have to do, right, to draw a line where you say, you know what, I'm going to take that challenge. Challenge accepted. I'm going to own that. Because we want God's word rattling around between your ears. And the more of God's word that you can get rattling around between your ears, the more devoted to Jesus you're likely to come. Um, And yeah, we just think you need to carry these words with you wherever you go. And then Paul goes on, look at verse three. This is one of the primary commands of the passage. He says, share in suffering as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. In other words, he's saying, look, Timothy, don't give in, don't give up, stay with it and stay with it, not just as anyone, but as a soldier, as a soldier. There's an old story about a pastor who challenged a casual attender to see himself as in the army of God, as a soldier. You know, and the casual attender said, well, pastor, I am in the army of God. The pastor said, well, then how come I only see you at Christmas and at Easter? I mean, how could you possibly be in, you know, the army of God? And he says, well, I'm in the secret service. You know, I think really the problem is that there's, we, there's too many Christians in the United States of America that think they're in the secret service. And what Paul is saying to Timothy, he's saying, look, as a soldier, you are in the army. And, and there will be casualties and there will be warfare. War is difficult. This is war, Timothy. This is not a picnic. You know, in war, you must be willing to endure suffering. And so I want to tease out what suffering might look like in our culture. And I think it's important to realize that suffering is going to look vastly different for Christians depending upon the country that they live in. So, for example, suffering as a Christian in Iran or Iraq is going to look vastly different, right, than it looks to suffer as a Christian here in America. So I'm just going to contextualize it for here in America. In other words, if I was preaching this message in Iraq, uh, I would preach it entirely differently. 
So here, here in America, at some point or several points in our lives, we're all going to find ourselves in a difficult set of circumstances, in a season of life when it just is what it is, and it looks like that's just the way it's going to be, and there's really no way to change that set of circumstances. As difficult as they are, as much as we would like them to go away, they're just not going away. So for many of us, that's going to be relational. So maybe you find yourself in a marriage and it's not a great marriage, but you don't want to get a divorce and he doesn't want to get a divorce, but nobody really wants to change. And so that's just the way it is. For some of you, it's your kids. You know, they didn't want to grow up and be what you thought they should grow up and be. And they're making choices that you don't like. And, you know, they're, gonna, they're not going to live up to the potential that you think they have. And that's just the way it is. And there's nothing you can do about it anymore. For some of us, it's financial. You know, your financial dreams aren't coming true. And there's nothing you can do. I mean, professionally, it just didn't work out and this feels permanent and to you there doesn't seem to be any hope to this maybe for some of us it's a health issue I mean it's debilitating and it's chronic and it's painful and it's just gonna go on and on and they can treat it but they can't cure it and so this is just your new reality it's your new normal here's my point I, I don't know what set what that set of circumstances looks like for you but I know this every one of us in the room will go through seasons of these and this is why Paul goes on in verse 4 and here's what he says. He says, no one serving as a soldier gets entangled in the concerns of, ci of civilian life. So he's saying, Timothy, don't go AWOL. Don't chase the things that everyone else is chasing. Don't try to pretend you're not in the army and start acting like everybody else acts right? Don't get so discouraged that you start chasing the same things everybody else around you is chasing to make you feel better, Timothy. Don't get entangled in civilian affairs. And I want to be clear about what I think a civilian affair is for followers of Jesus. So, I mean, we all know this. It's so easy, isn't it, in our culture to get distracted from following Jesus? I mean, it's so easy, isn't it, to forget that we are soldiers of Christ and just to start chasing the things that everybody else around us is chasing? You know, I believe this, this call, this call not to get entangled in civilian affairs is a call away from what the Bible would call idolatry. So in the Old Testament, most of us know this, idols would be statues, right? And usually they were really big because to suggest power or beauty or grandeur. And they'd usually be in the form of either a person or an animal or some combination of that to indicate power or ability. And what made people choose to embrace an idol in the Old Testament was that... Uh, you know, instead of the real God, was that the real God was making them wait for stuff. And they didn't want to wait. And that's the problem with the real God, right? He has a timetable that is sometime, sometimes different than the timetable we think he should have. He doesn't often work or move fast enough. 
Now, when we hear the word idolatry, most people think about bowing down to a statue. So we kind of think, well, you know, we're in the clear, right? But at one point, God spoke to the leaders of Israel and he said these words. He said, these men, these leaders, they have set up idols in their hearts, in their hearts. See, the real problem isn't a big statue in a temple. It's an idol that's been set up in your heart and my heart. See, idolatry is when I take anything that isn't God and I put it in a place where only God belongs. Idolatry happens when I look to something that does not have God's power to give me what only God has the power and the authority to give. And part of the problem with idolatry is that you can take something that's really good in and of itself, family, children, a husband, a wife, and you can take those people and you can put them in a place that only God should be, uh, you know, that, where, that belongs only to God. So let's tease this out a little bit more. Let me ask you a question. How many places of worship do you think there are in the United States of America? Turn to the person next to you and just take a guess. So depending on where you get your research, it's kind of hard to pin this down, but the number usually comes to around 350,000 places of worship in the United States. But I think the number's a lot higher because there's a building near here made of steel and glass and tomorrow hundreds of people are gonna stream into that building and they're gonna sit behind desks or offices or cub cubicles and some of them are gonna find their ultimate sense of meaning and purpose in that building. For some people that building is actually their place of worship and they don't even know it. There's another building near here where they have a big safe and in that big vault, they keep money or at least the promise of money. And some people will go into that building and their primary sense of safety and security comes from how much money they have in that vault or in that bank. And they offer sacrifices to the God of that building on a regular basis. There's another building not far from here, just right down the road actually, where all the walls have mirrors and the priests and the priestesses dressed in, dress in spandex and leotards. And the temptation in this building is to worship things like appearance and beauty. And sometimes people are actually driven to distraction to please that God. Look, in our society, civilian affairs could also represent things like success. Success can be an idol. I mean, it's so ironic to me. For 15 years, we ran a series about success. And you know what we called it? American Idol. Sometimes being smart is an idol. You ever heard anybody brag about their degrees or their GPA? That can kind of become an idol. Relationships can become kind of an idol. We can, you know, we can place all our eggs in the basket of him. She is the one who's going to make, take me over the moon. He is the one who will make me happy. I will build my life around her. 
Pleasure can become an idol. I mean, we can get so caught up. It's a civilian affair, right? We can get so caught up in the next vacation, the next sexual experience, the next high. Some people medicate themselves, right, to escape from the negative feelings associated with all the pain and the trauma in our lives. In our day, we call that an addiction, but the Bible called that idolatry. Look, we, you and I, we are a worshiping people. It's what we do. It's who we are. We can't help it. We all treasure something above anything else in our lives. We just do. We give our devotion to somebody. We offer sacrifices to something. We look for the blessed and happy life somewhere. And when soldiers of Christ do that, they have become entangled in civilian affairs. They are chasing the same things that everybody else is chasing. They're just acting like they're in the secret service. And notice too that Paul says that as a soldier, Timothy should work to please his commanding officer. Of course, we know that to be Jesus. And the reality is, friends, every one of us in this room should be living our lives, not for any audience except an audience of one. And I think what Paul is really saying to Timothy is he's he's saying, Timothy, everybody in your church is going to have an agenda for you. They're going to try to tell you what to teach and what not to teach. And they're going to try to tell you, you know, what you should do and what you shouldn't do. Everybody in your church, Timothy, is going to have an expectation for you. And if you cave to all all their expectations and you forget that you have a commanding officer and you only have to please an audience of one, you're dead in the water. What he's saying is, Timothy, don't be a people pleaser. Don't get so caught up in trying to keep everybody in your church happy that you quit trying to please Jesus. That's your highest calling. He's just saying, look, don't be insubordinate to your commanding officer for the sake of pleasing people. Don't go AWOL in your attempts to make everybody happy. Jesus' perspective, his heart, his, uh, his ambition for you is the only one that matters. And then he goes from using the persona of a soldier Now he moves to an athlete, and here's what he says in verse 5. Also, if anybody competes as an athlete, he's not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. Now, what Paul's saying here is essentially he's saying, look, uh, if you don't follow the rules, you're going to be disqualified. You, You won't get the crown. You won't get the reward if you don't live as an athlete. I mean, think about the uh, athletics in our day. You've got things like this, pass interference, offsides, double dribble, stepping out of bounds. I could probably give you one for baseball, but the truth is I don't care. (laughs) Paul's point is this. He's saying, look, just as there are rules in athletics, there are rules to life and to ministry. And one of those rules is be faithful in suffering. Endure that. Don't give up. Don't give in. 
And I want to I illustrate Paul's situation to tease out just how important this is. So the Apostle Paul, remember, is writing this letter from prison. He's probably dictating it, and I'll talk more about the why of that in a minute. And the Apostle Paul had no idea as he was rotting away in that pr- prison cell. He had no idea what, what hung in the balance of his decision to remain faithful when remaining faithful was difficult. The Apostle Paul had no idea what God was up to through him. He's just sitting in prison writing, or in some cases maybe dictating, because he had really bad eyesight. And so he's dictating from prison with this death sentence over his head, and he just thinks, well, hopefully these letters will get through. He, he can't, he's not even assured they're going to reach the people that he's writing them to. But do you know what hung in the balance, friends? We hung in the balance. You and I, many of us are in Christ today because Paul played by the rules in a really difficult place. He stayed faithful. And here's what I would want to say to you. You have no idea. You have no idea who or what hangs in the balance of your decision to remain faithful when everything around you says, be faithless. I mean, when your circumstances just don't seem to be working, you have no idea what God might be up to. You know, uh, when, when everything around you says, look, there's no point in being ethical. There's no point in being moral. There's no point in being faithful. There's no point in enduring or staying with it. There's no point in telling the truth. There's no point in doing it the way, you know, it ought to be done. There's no point in being obedient. There's no point in being submissive. There's no point in saying yes to God because it just doesn't feel like there's a win in this for me. Listen, you have no idea what hangs in the balance. And you know, and the problem is, and the tragedy is, and the challenge is, you'll never know unless you're willing to remain faithful to God when remaining faithful is a really, really hard thing to do. But it's in the context, friends, of adversity that God does his most amazing things in us and through us and in the world. So this is a really, really big deal because you have no idea how important it is that you and I be faithful when it's just difficult to be faithful. And then he goes, so he goes from a soldier, then he goes to an athlete, and then he goes to a farmer. And the idea here, he says the hardworking farmer. So he's, he's just assuming that farming is really, really hard work. He's saying, Timothy, work hard. Don't let up. Don't take your foot off the gas. The hardworking farmer ought to be the first to get a share of the crops. He's saying, look, farming's hard work, but the farmer gets his share of the crops. He gets to eat. He gets to put food on the table. Timothy, if you will stay faithful, you're going to get a reward. And it's not just crops. It's not just food on the table. And Paul will talk more about that reward later in this letter. We'll talk far more about that then. And then finally, Paul goes on to say this. He says in verse seven, consider what I say for the Lord will give you understanding and everything. So here's Paul's conclusion. He says, Timothy, I don't want you to waste this wisdom. I don't want you to give up on it. God is going to give you the insight that you need. So I want you to think on this, Timothy. I want you to consider 
I want you to turn it over in your mind. I want you to percolate on it. I want you to, uh, I, I just want you to think on this over and over and over again. And so that's what I want us to do. And I want us to do that this way because there's another passage that brings great insight into this passage. There's another passage that lets us know how we can be sure that we're, we're standing strong in God's grace. And that passage was also written by Paul in a letter to the, to the church at Corinth. And here's what Paul said in these three verses. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 7b through 10. Therefore... So that I might not exalt myself, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to torment me so that I would not exalt myself. Concerning this, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it would leave me, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is perfected in weakness. Therefore, I will most gladly boast all the more about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may reside in me. So now, I take pleasure in weakness and insults and hardships and persecutions and in difficulties for the sake of Christ. Because when I am weak, then I am strong. So let's just kind of walk through this thought by thought. So Paul's saying, look, to keep me from becoming too prideful, to keep me humble, I was giving, given something painful in, in my life that just kept beating me up day after day after day. In fact, some people think Paul actually had epilepsy and that while he was speaking, while he was traveling, while he was teaching, while he was trying to get the early church established, that he would have these fits, these seizures, and he would wake up and he would be embarrassed. Some people think that he had migraine headaches that were so bad he couldn't study, he couldn't preach or teach. We know he definitely had some eye trouble. So some people think it could have been a debilitating eye disease that it kept him from writing or editing or teaching or preaching. But the reality is we don't know exactly what it was, but here's what we do know. It was painful. It was humiliating. It was debilitating. So much so that Paul begged God to remove it. In fact, here's what he says. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. So this means there were probably three seasons in Paul's life where he just, this thorn was so unbearable to him that he finally fell on his knees and said, God, I cannot continue to do what you've called me to do if you don't remove this. I can't keep going. I can't go on anymore. I cannot do what you've called me to do. I cannot stand up in front of people. I can't write. I can't be faithful. I can't go on unless you take this away from me. And here's the interesting thing. See, some of you may have been told in the past that the reason you're not getting better or the reason that your life isn't changing is because you don't have enough faith. And I don't believe that. And the reason I don't believe that is because I believe the Apostle Paul had more faith than all of us in this room put together, and he still had to face a painful and a debilitating and a, and a humbling condition. 
And the very first time that the Apostle Paul asked God, he heard nothing. And the second time he asked God, he heard nothing. And then finally, during this third season of prayer, he's begging, God, God, you've got to do something for me. You've got to give me relief. And here's what God said. My grace is sufficient for you because my power is made perfect in weakness. So you know what, essentially what God was saying to Paul is, the answer, the answer, Paul, is no. I'm not going to do it. I will not remove this suffering from you. But I am going to give you the strength, and I'm going to give you the power, and I'm going to give you the grace that you need to see your way through. So now Paul has a fourth thing to add to the list. Not only is it painful, not only is it humiliating, not only is it debilitating, but it's going to be permanent. It's going to stick around until the day he dies. That's not really permanent, you understand, but at least in this life. So what, what, what God's really saying to Paul is this. Oh, by the way, Paul, I do love you, and I'm going to use you. I'm going to use you to change the world. And people are going to name their children after you. They're going to name their children Paul, and they're going to name their dog Nero. It's going to happen, I promise. In other words, Paul, I haven't forgotten about you. You're still right in the center of my will, but Paul, the answer to your question of, will you remove my adversity? Will you remove my suffering? Will you ease my pain and change my circumstances? My answer to you is no, but no with a promise. I'm making you a promise, and the promise is my grace will be sufficient for you. It will. And nobody would make this up because this comes from a heart that was so in tune with the will of God in the first century that here's how he responds to this no. He doesn't shake an angry fist at God. He doesn't say, well, God, if that's the way you treat your kids, I'm out of here. I can't believe you'd treat me this way. Here's what he says. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness. So that, and here's another purpose statement, so that Christ's power may rest on me. Christ, so that Christ's power may rest in me. He's telling us the purpose of embracing suffering. The purpose is so that Christ's power may rest on you and me, on us in this room. Uh, So here's another way of saying the same thing. Hear me out. I'm going to say this twice because I want you to get it. Embracing your inability, embracing your weakness is a prerequisite to experiencing Christ's power, his ability. I'm going to say it again. Embracing your weakness, embracing your inability is a key. It's a, it's a turnkey to beginning to experience the power and the strength of God. Okay. So that Christ's power may rest on, you, on me. And then he goes on and says, this is why for Christ's sake I delight in weaknesses and insults. And I mean, who writes this way? Who talks this way? I delight in weaknesses and insults and hardships and persecutions and difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. To which we say, none of those things look good on a resume, Paul. I mean, we like strength. 
We like success. We like peace, not persecution. We like comfort. But Paul would say, God gave me a gift, and that gift was a thorn. It was a gift with a promise and a purpose. And once I received it as a gift that kept me dependent upon Christ, and once I received the promise that his grace was sufficient for me, well, it changed the way I viewed suffering altogether. It changed my whole life. And that brings us to us. See, you have the option today to receive Whatever it is that you're dealing with, whatever may be painful in your life, whatever may be debilitating in your life, whatever may be humbling in your life, whatever may be permanent in your life, you have the option to change your attitude and to change your perspective about what it is that you're facing, and you have the option to actually receive that as a gift with a promise and a purpose. A gift as a, with a promise and a purpose. The purpose is to make you dependent upon God so that you might know his strength, so that the power of Christ might rest on you. And the promise is that his grace really is sufficient, not just for Paul, not just for Timothy, not just for me. It's sufficient for you in whatever it is that you're facing. See? So will you do that? This is, see, this is how you can know that you are standing strong in God's grace. This is how you can know. When you look adversity in the face and you say, God's grace is sufficient for me, then and only then will you know that you are strong in the grace that's in Christ Jesus. And I would want that for every single one of us in the room. I wouldn't want any of us to miss that moment and that opportunity for Christ's power to rest on you. So here's what we're going to do. Um, I'm going to pray for you because again, I, I don't know what it, what it is, right, that you're facing. But I'm going to pray that God will give you the ability and the power to change the way that you think about whatever it is that you're facing. And that you, with Paul, like Paul, would be able to write amazing words like, so hey, I delight in hard stuff. I rejoice in that. I mean, that's going to take, that's a tall order, isn't it? But it's a supernatural order and it's exactly what God does when people are surrendered and submitted to him. So let me pray for you. Every, everybody just bow. Hey God, I don't know what everybody's facing here, but you do. You have your eyes fixed on each and every one of us. And so God, I pray about whatever might be painful in the hearts, minds, and lives of these men and women. I pray about whatever might be debilitating, what, what might be humbling, and what might even feel like it's permanent. God, I pray that you would speak a hopeful word into each of their hearts today. I pray that you would remind them that your eyes are on them, that the power of Christ can rest on them. I pray that you would speak a hopeful word to them that your grace 
is sufficient. And I pray that that would be more than a theory to these men and women, but that they would come to know that this week, that they would sense in their spirit that you're working and moving in their life and that they would receive whatever that thing is as a gift from you and that they would look to you and that you would help them. And so uh, we just pray these things in the mighty name of our Jesus and all God's people said, amen. Amen. Hey, so we're done a little early today. You're welcome. (laughs) Just proof again how much God loves you, right? Thank you guys for worshiping with us. Uh, Let me just give you a little benediction. Father, uh, may you go now in his grace and his mercy and his strength. God bless you guys. Have a great week.